start El Crego. Did that work? Cool. All right, and now we shall start the stream. I miss the creepy Craig voice. Why? Because it's it's awesome. Just like now recording. <laughs> the, okay, so we're streaming. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Flail Forward. Let me <clears throat> actually talk into the microphone here. There we go. That's better. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Flail Forward. Another, another, another Flail Forward. Welcome to another Flail Forward. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm doing good. It's just it's been a week, and uh, it it it's been a lot of weeks. A lot of weeks have been a week. Yeah, this has been the worst week this year for me. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. This is the mm. longest march I've ever had. Yeah, it's it's not the worst week I've ever had. It's just for this year. It decided to save everything up for the same day. Apparently, those do happen. Yeah. I have an idea, so give me a second. I am actually going to see if I can lure people in from another game design. Lure them. <laughs> yeah, another game design <laughs> Discord. Listen. See if. Oh no! That. They're not. They're not going to have any. Uh, nothing to gain. This is purely bait. Lure them here so that they can be subjected to our uninformed opinions. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Flail Forward. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're very live now. I should stop fucking with shit in my hand. Uh, we're very live. How are you? I'm well. This is Rob, your host. I don't. I don't know why I'm. Uh, it, it's okay. Everything's. I mean, fine. do you want? Do you want one of us? No. To, it's to interject. Nope. Nope. I got it. It. <laughs> it looks like it's falling apart, but that's only what it looks like. It's really just forming very slowly. In reverse. All right. Tonight, our topic is, uh, what can we steal from other game type media? Uh, and use in tabletop RPGs. What's been stolen? If anything's been uh, taken recently and somebody's seen a cool example, I want to hear about that. Uh, and then uh, what are some things out there that games have done recently or that maybe have really optimized doing recently that uh, we could take lessons from in the uh, tabletop RPG space? Uh, Mark, this was your topic. Do you want to yeah. explain a little bit more uh, about where you were trying to get us to go with this? For sure. Um, so what, uh, what came up for me was that um, one of the online games that I play and have played for quite a long time uh, is called Dota 2. And it's a long-standing game. Um, and they released a bunch of new content recently. Uh, and what I thought was really interesting is that the way that they keep their game fresh isn't by just adding sort of a new uh, little spice, but they actually go back and sort of rework their game in all these different little ways. Um, so that um, the, the, I guess the idea is that 
each player plays a, a hero and you have a big arena that you fight in. But every update of the game tweaks each of the heroes and gives them different abilities or different items that can help you scale up how you want to build your character. Um, and it opens up new combinations and new ways to playing the same hero or uh, a different role that they might play in the, the team. Um, and it really is a great way of keeping people innovating and working within the mechanics that have been already established. And I thought that that was such a brilliant way of creating uh, a game that people want to return to because the content always feels different when you're exposed to just these subtle changes. Like it unlocks new possibilities for you. Um, and I, I wanted to see what other lessons could uh, these other games have in terms of how they present their content or how they um, grow and expand and, and keep their player base that we could learn lessons from. Like, would, would that kind of system work for RPGs? Could we imagine this slowly like subscription-based content release or uh, sort of like seasons of play with an RPG where from one season to the next, the way that you might design or build your fighter class would look different. Um, and it would give the players new tools to play with. So that was kind of where that started for me. I mean, kind of D&D &D does that, right? That's like, <laughs> that, exactly that is what D&D &D is kind of doing. Yes. Right. Sorry. Similarly, right? Each edition we're, we're, brings something different, yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's you're subscribing, in a sense. You're paying for the content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, periodically. I mean, I paid for the player's handbook how many times now? Um, and that's been the 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 D and D player's handbook. Yeah, that's uh, in in this various is iterations. A little but yeah, there different, it is, though. Kinda. Like this mm -hmm. would be more like if you had a live subscription. So instead of just like here's the the physical printout book of the game, it's more like okay, you get a PDF. And the PDF gets updated like every couple months. So yep. like we'll take information from what the uh, the player base is saying. They're like, oh well, people want to play the fighter class, but the fighter is kind of boring. But we've talked to a bunch of people. We got some ideas for it. So we're going to make some changes to the fighter class. It'll update the PDF, and you get like no extra cost or anything. It's just you get the same PDF version. Mm -hmm. Like you get a new version of the PDF and it's like, okay, this has an updated uh, set of things for the fighter. And maybe we'll include like, here's a different um, variation on the fighter that didn't exist before because we thought of this cool idea. So we added it in and you have now a different type of fighter that you can play that didn't exist before. Exactly. Um, I don't know if any of you played through D&D um, &D Next. So before 5th edition, uh, Wizards did a whole series trying to figure out what the best rules changes would be. Um, yeah. So the game stayed largely the same from one version of D&D Next to the next, but it um, they made these small adjustments and tweaks to say, oh, you know, that last version, uh, the ranger felt super strong. So we're going to make these small adjustments, small tweaks to the kit that it has, and that'll change uh, how it plays or how it feels. Um, and it's it still works with all these other components that are well-established for what we want D&D &D Next to do, 
so it's not like a new game. It's really a tweak to that original structure. Um, so that's that's kind of I, I agree with Catrice. It's slightly different, but I think there's there's something to that idea of um, making these little adjustments. Uh, the other mm. game that comes to mind is Lancer, which um, when it released, it had sort of a core set of different Lego blocks of these different um, mechs that you could work within. Um, and as it's been going on, they've released more and more content for new mechs. Uh, and each mech brings about like a toolkit that you can use interchangeably, like the Lego brick idea. So I'd say, oh, I want the weapon from this mech and I want to use the, the core frame from this other mech and I want to use the uh, add-on system from this one. Uh, so just adding a new um, set of building blocks allows you to recustomize sort of the structure of your, your mech's frame or how you want to play your character in, in, in a different way, which I think yeah, is but- a really brilliant way of presenting new content. Yeah, but you can't do that without Omnipods, and we're inner sphere purists here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Damn it. <laughs> okay. so, 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 yeah. Go ahead, Kapoor. What are we talking about that isn't just supplements are being done in different ways now? Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Um, just a, a different way of looking at what maybe a supplement is, or even just how to present your your uh, game, like what, what innovations are these other forms of gaming media doing that I think we could learn a lesson from or consider an interesting way of bringing that into the tabletop space? Um, I think uh, Itch and Patreon are kind of doing that. They're, Patreon, I think you could, there are people doing uh, adventure things on Patreon that are basically doing i mean subscription rpg content um it's not mm-hmm. most of it's not rules most of it's compatible with other stuff because it's in order to do a full rule set in which you're getting constant subscription content from i mean it, <clears throat> you have to have a fairly sizable writing base or mm-hmm. or something to do that um but doing doing short little things like that uh on a subscriber basis i think is totally feasible i mean it, it is feasible people are doing it so it's right. not like um i don't the, think it necessarily requires like a subscriber base like one of the things that you'll note about like the dota 2 thing is that it is a free-to-play game same with like league of legends or the other mobas for the most part because it's these little changes that they keep doing that keep the game fresh because mm-hmm. these are primarily PvP games. Most PvP games last six months and then they're dead because you can't get more people to play them. These ones keep updating constantly, which keeps the game fresh so that people keep playing them. They keep adding more content. They add it for free so that people keep doing this one game instead of changing over to different games and i think that may actually be a viable way to keep people coming back to this game even after they bought it right but they, and then they, they monetize with cosmetics don't they mm-hmm. yeah those are yes. mostly modified with that that's a little bit harder to do with the tabletop game but right. 
<laughs> not impossible, oddly enough. No, we do have ways. We have ways to do this. For example, dice. yeah, not just dice, but uh, miniatures is a really big one, especially mm -hmm. since we have three D printing is becoming a lot more reasonable now. So mm -hmm. you could yeah. actually set up like, like I plan once I have the initial money to do this to set it up so that I can have like three D printed. Uh, miniatures for these things and people can just put in something similar to like um hero forge is it mm -hmm. i think it's hero forge yeah, yeah. Yep. something similar to that where they'd be able to customize like their sayorsa characters and they'd just be like i want my character i there's this new class that was added to the game oh in a recent thing oh it's been added here i can actually request like a new appearance for my character and just get it like shipped to them that way they can keep buying essentially cosmetic stuff yeah i think having stls uh that's definitely something i'm working on with ashes uh, uh my partner and i are uh working on uh realizing the war game aspect of it cool. uh as a standalone uh thing and where he's working on he's got well we have like three or four models right now and but we'll, 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 I'm not going to release anything until we have a full set on either side. So we're going to mm -hmm. planning on doing seven models per, per side initially. And then that's going to be part of a Patreon thing we do. But, um, but so that's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I have noticed the same thing. Like the STL market is getting bigger because at this point you can get a pretty decent, 3D printer for the cost of a Warhammer army. And that's not a good position for Games Workshop to be in. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, it's not, because then you can get every army. Right, yeah. Um, and just print what you want in any quantity you want. I mean, and then there's... there's. I, I was watching something in recently that where um, people are recasting, um, creating old things that Games Workshop stopped making, right? So it's really like the IP issue is really tricky there, right? Because mm -hmm. th these are products that are not available. The IP is, has for all intents and purposes, uh, not realizing any new creations there. There's, you know, you have, you could, you can't get the old chaos space Marines with a giant friggin' claw that was, you know, it, it had a particular look to it or the plague Marines with the wooden plasma gun. These are just things examples i know of that are that are the things that i if if i were to do if i were to get heavily back into 40k and i w wanted to have like a nostalgia trip with these models i would want the older stuff right i would want like the chunky looking chaos space marine <laughs> just looked awful i mean any, when you're comparing it to like the really slick miniatures of today but there was a certain um feel to yeah, exactly. There was there was an aesthetic there that was very attractive, and that, that it worked for that thing, right? And I so um, I, I think there are places where RPGs can kind of get into that mix by doing that thing, like having STLs. You know, like it's not, you know, ZBrush is. I think the basic version is free, uh, and anybody can learn to do that. And mm -hmm. You know, that's just one more I, way you can do I just do thought stuff. of something else that mm -hmm. would be even more interesting. So 
one of the issues with 40k is that they have occasionally referenced things that they exist within the universe they might even have rules for them but they never produced a model for it yeah it happens a lot yeah so um well um kind of in a reverse form um one of the faction there's a faction in in uh warhammer fantasy that was never realized never had a model you know sort of never had stats the newest total war warhammer game Mm -hmm. is going to have that as a faction before models exist for it like it's it's one of those weird like reverse examples of of what we're trying to talk yeah, about yeah but that yeah. blew me away when i was like oh they're gonna do cathay and in, in what like what yeah, I, I have an even better idea to do with that though crazy so yeah. why like there's a lot of people get really interested in various settings like if you build a setting the setting is what usually enraptures like people more than the Mm -hmm. gameplay so what if you uh made a nice description about this uh thing for let's say the warhammer 40k example that we were going with let's say that you add like a new type of demon or something for chaos and you reference it you give some vague details about roughly how it should look like what kinds of abilities it has, you get the rules for it, and then you set it out, and you're like, okay, we're going to have a contest to see who can build the best model for it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. whoever succeeds at that, we will not just produce this model from our workshop. We'll give you 10% of the profits of sales. You would have an immense artist backlash, and nobody would work for Games Workshop ever again. <laughs> is yeah, what would happen but... because you're basically asking for free work. You're just like, here, work for free, and only one of you gets paid. Uh, and, yeah, it, 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 that's what there there have been publishing companies that have tried to do that. It it doesn't go well. That's unfortunate because some of them will do that kind of thing. Some people really do enjoy making that kind of thing. I agree. Yeah. And there's a good sentiment there in like the you're trying to give somebody a voice who wouldn't ordinarily get a chance to do something like that, right? Like there's a, there's a good impulse there. Like I, I but unfortunately for, for people who work in that industry, it's it's like, oh, okay, you want me to you want me to throw like eight hours at something for, for no pay, like no thanks. That, that, would, oh, that would be suicide. <laughs> I mean, that it would is... mostly be an amateur thing, but I, right. I do understand it. And I, and I have seen the instances that, that you're talking about of the backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the big, one of the big problems as well is um, the person who gets chosen is usually someone already heavily vested into the, into the field. And uh, yeah. almost like you shouldn't say that they're, they're already pre-chosen, like they're, they're going to win regardless, mm-hmm. but um it's unfortunately what ends up happening is like that that it, you, you rarely ever get surprised by who who mm-hmm. submits those things right it's a guy with a really crisp like art station profile or um you know a a, a, a deviant art page that's that's like just loaded with stuff and or yeah it's it's it usually it is exactly who you would expect and that's what but you can the 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 issue is like generally you can pick those people out like you're basically just just offloading the labor to the to the market in some sense, but I mm. think probably it depends, right? Because I, mm. I see where that can 
that can come from a good place, but it's also yeah, I, we're I way off topic. <laughs> kind of, it is. It is something that there are other other games that have done similar things to this before, no. and it has gone well. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I know they've done a couple for things like um, Team Fortress Two and stuff like that. I know mm -hmm. that. Well, even stuff like Tabletop Simulator, which has uh, community-based uh, mm -hmm. things that you can work on. So they, they never pay out, I guess. But the model is that you allow the creators or allow the users to be able to create and build on the platform that you've designed. Um, so that's that's sort of, you could kind of consider it like the open gaming license of please build content that works for our rule set and feel free to publish that and make your own profit from it. Um, but we're, we're allowing you to sort of have that basis to build off of, which I think could be something that you look at from the RPG design perspective and just saying, how can we try to find these new opportunities for uh, the gamers, the people that are actually engaging with it to be able to build stuff and work from it um, and I think that's been a huge innovation is the forged in the dark kind of thing where you say, here's the, the basic framework, build on it, do your own thing, make your own products from it. Um, but always the, the draw is to come back to what that original product was. So, yeah. Um, one of the other mechanics I wanted to point out, because I, I know we've talked about it in the past, was some of the legacy elements, like the board games that do sort of these slowly unlocking elements of the game as you encounter them or as you reach certain milestones. And I think there are RPGs that are moving in that direction and that have those kinds of elements. And I know for a while, Ashes was uh, working towards that. I don't know how much of that is still in the current version um, of that like legacy element, but I think that's definitely one of those spaces where uh, we're drawing inspiration from other kinds of games to see if we can integrate that. Yeah, I was, I, I was, I did have a, a legacy element in it for a while. Uh, at this point, that's sort of fallen by the wayside as most of the mechanics are like that now. So it's not like there's one mechanic among the rest that's a legacy. It's like you're, as, as, because the, the the thing's getting structured in these, like this booklet form that the players are going through, they're they're using the rules as they encounter them. So there's a use case immediately for what they are trying to do right hopefully mm -hmm. and um everything becomes that sort of adding an element in i've thought about ways to fork to like ha how it should fork in different ways because obviously players aren't going to do the same thing in the same order every time so it's it might do something where it's a um or it ends up looking even more like a choose your own adventure booklet and it's like if this happens go to this page if this happens go to that page but it'll be more high level or it's like if you do if you know what initiates next is is a combat flip to the combat and that's this page and if what happens next is a negotiation we'll then flip to this page and right th those will be probably pretty similar actually since that's just a crisis thing but like did the thread resolve in a crisis flip to this page and there's here here's how you handle it uh you know if the uh if you resolve something in the thread before a crisis this is what you do and how you translate that impact to the other other parts um and so the games at this stage in its evolution is moving towards something where that's 
the the guide has a book that they've read that contains the the rules for facilitating the experience and then the book the players get is this booklet and i it is not clear to me if they're each going to need their own or if i can get away with having like one play booklet for the table and then everybody has their own character sheet um it right now i'm sort of writing it as if it's one player reading the book per book so right I'll try that first and see how it goes, but maybe I think there'll be opportunity to just limit down to only one one necessary thing per table. Um, yeah, keep in mind that you're probably only going to have one or two people per table that have actually read the book. So. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the, the 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 book that I'm saying that I may have need one per player is not going. They, you just start. You don't have to read it beforehand. That's the whole point. Um, so yeah, yeah, and you're right. I, I do uh, the guide. The guide is the person that reads the guidebook. That is the the guidebook being the one that helps you facilitate the the process. But the uh, the setting book. I don't know. I don't. I haven't. I don't have a word for that yet. Playbook isn't exactly right since it's not. It's a rule book. Um, Obviously, it's a book book. A book book. <laughs> yeah, I I get you. I I think that there are interesting ways to integrate that kind of legacy stuff into RPGs. Like I could mm -hmm. totally understand a, a, a gaming space where it's like you are um, building out like a civilization, kind of like the um, kingdom death and mm -hmm. that you unlock new technologies and that technology could open up a whole new chapter of your, um, your rule book in an mm -hmm. RPG. And that that rule book now becomes sort of this thing that your entire gaming group carries through and that yeah. your play experience from this book to a, a brand new book could be totally different because you've unlocked different technologies and you've progressed in a different way. Um, and I think that would be very interesting to, to bring into the RPG space. Whereas now a lot of the games that I've encountered are very much you, one player reads it from beginning to end and disseminates that knowledge to the players. Right. Uh, uh, it, it was interesting. At one point, I did have I, at one point when I was when I had the legacy mechanics for Ashes integrated. I had multiple versions of the PDF output that had different mechanics, quote unquote, revealed, mm -hmm. so that you would have um, you would have different versions of the PDF depending on what what had been unlocked. It would just proved weirdly untenable because once it got past like five things, I was like, okay, how do I? <laughs> How I organize these, and then the permutations of things that could be unlocked were just. Right. So I had to have, to have something in the PDF itself that would, I don't know, be some. There's 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 ways probably to do it where like it's a password protect or something like that, where you have a password in a on a website or I, I don't know, or or with the game itself on a on a particular page, you know, like reference the third word on this page, um, or something like that. Uh, Yep. You know, there's 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 different ways I think of conceptualizing something like that to to achieve a particular result. It's just that, yeah, for for Ashes at this point, I think it's moving away from that. That's cool. Um, that one of the things uh, that I wanted to bring up was um, I think it's going to happen soon. I'm not sure. I'm not sure anybody's jumped on it yet. So I hope uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying something that's. I'm not speaking something horrible into being because I think it might be horrible, but we'll we'll find out. 
Um, I, I am fairly sure somebody's going to come up with a non-fungible token RPG sometime in the near future. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, I, I was looking into how you would do it, and it's not... It, it seems doable. Uh, and you could have just items that exist on the blockchain that, that uh, exchange between characters, and that's like the only one. Huh. And you could, you know, make it such that um, you could have, you could have, you know, something I was thinking about doing for this would be like for exclusive Kickstarter rewards would be like, here's a magic item that nobody else can have. Yeah, there's, there's ways to do that, but I immediately thought of something I saw the other day, which was... Mm. You wouldn't screenshot a non-fungible token, would you? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we know that people are going to do this. So yeah, of course. Like, yeah. There's only one of these in existence. Like that only works if you actually have, you know, an actual like uh, program that or application like app or whatever for your phone mm -hmm. that you have to use to play the game. Mm -hmm. The first this thing that doesn't ever... work in RPGs. <laughs> The first thing that that reminded me of was like Star Citizen, where it's like, where it's like our game's not released, but you can buy ships to use right. in our game. You know, uh -huh. um, <laughs> I don't think there's any. I don't know. There probably was unique ships in their in their whole run, like fundraising thing. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, something like that inherently leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But yeah, I, I get it. Like uh -huh. I, you know. If you're trying to raise money, it's a good way. I, I won't. Yeah, it, I mean the thing is, right? For an RPG, it, it's it's got this. L, it's it's even more cosmetic than in the other game, right? Because, mm -hmm. like Kat said, anybody could take the mechanic. Anybody, like the person who had it, could just put it online. And be like, here, here's what it does. Um, and you could any GM could obviously take that, but you would be the like, it's, it's just the prestige at that point. You are the guy who owns. Mm -hmm you know, this trident that has appeared in, like, you know, a bunch of other people's games because the trident does cool shit. Hey, but, okay, there, there's something that actually reminds me of something that's very, very close to this already, which does exist. Mm -hmm. uh, Primagen, specifically. Um, specifically, there's a... What they're calling a closed species. It's like a role-playing... Uh, species for like you know open role playing and such like you have the open one that anybody can use called protogen which are basically like little ro semi-robotic furries basically but then they made a the primogen which are like they're bigger they're taller they have like different um, stuff that's built into them certain traits that look better and such mm -hmm. and the way they've set up the uh, um the intellectual property rights you are not legally allowed to draw a character that you have not paid for paid for the primogen license so it's like if you had an elf you anybody can play an elf but if you want to play a drow then you have to pay us for the right to play a drow. And if you try to draw artwork of a drow and you have not paid for this license, we will sue the shit out of you. 
Mm. And this is something that actually exists already and is being used in role playing, and it annoys the fuck out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's there, it's gatekeeping in a way. For oh, it it definitely is. It is explicitly gatekeeping. That is exactly the point behind it. Is this is how they're funding like some of their development for their other stuff and things, but. It's like mm. people will pay large amounts. Like they'll be like, "Yeah, I'll pay a hundred dollars to have one of these primogen that nobody else has," because right. nobody else is willing to pay a hundred dollars for the right to and use like just a, a character concept. And there's so a company he, doing this now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It's this is strange. There's yeah. a whole at, like here. I'll just. As we all go Google real fast, like what? Yeah. Here, I'll just put it on the stream. So I had, I had never heard of this before now, but this is a thing. Uh, I don't quite understand. So wikifur.com has a thing. How do you get into this stuff? This is some deep, deep web. You have to be on the internet a long time to hit this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or maybe not. But it's mostly what furry based, you said. Species. Yeah. Uh -huh. There's there's a lot of controversy over that kind of thing because uh like, you know, the, the lawsuits about it and how they're very aggressive about maintaining their intellectual property for this one. And yeah, it's a closed species is what they call it. Closed species will often have a public shaming list of people who are not allowed to create new characters, species, or in certain cases even use existing characters that were allowed before their live ones. Huh. Oh? Yeah. How is this enforced? Is they're enforcing it through blacklisting? Uh, wow. Oh, if if that's all they're enforcing it through through blacklisting, I mean, I guess in the community that would suck, but. Uh... Uh -huh. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, they've also put out lawsuits as well, but I don't know for certain. But yeah, it's oh. uh, it's things like they'll contact like art sites that put stuff up. Like if you try to put this on like DeviantArt, they will complain to DeviantArt. They'll be like, "No, this is our stuff. You're not allowed to do that kind of thing." Wow, this is fine to hear about. Thanks, Catrice. Yeah, this is. <laughs> It, I don't know if this counts as like stealing things, other things. Although, wow, we've only been talking, we've been talking about stealing things, like racial from other things, and we've only been talking about weird monetization rituals. But uh, anyway, I'm thinking of what these are reminding me of is like the the more harmless version of this, which is like, oh yeah, um, if you pay us this amount in the Kickstarter, we'll create, we'll put your custom horror horror monster in the book. <laughs> Right, like make explicit rules in the book as part of the beastry. There you go. True, true. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. The, yeah, but that's I, a deep... I've actually even run one of those things. I only had one bite on it though so far, but it was like a thing that I was like, yeah, if you subscribe, give like a bit of money for developing the game. Um, not only will you get like the standard stuff, but I'll use the money to um, commission like 
a picture for the game's book and you'll basically get to have your character you design for the game in the game with actual like professional artwork for it because if i get like a couple of people that are paying into this like if if i can get a few of them to pay for it and i get like two or three characters that they had together then i'd be able to be like okay it cost me less money than all three of them paying into it than it does for the artwork itself so they all get their characters into the game they they get the picture for it which is good but they get the picture cheaper than it would have cost any of them to pay for it and they get to have it as official artwork in the book itself like this would be almost ideal for almost everybody to set this up hmm. like it helps mitigate like the cost of the artwork because the artwork is by far the most expensive part at the moment yeah artwork is very pricey um i don't know i, I have seen on kickstarters where where they do portraiture of of people you know people submit their photographs and uh and they end up in in the game like uh, Shadowrun, the uh, digital Shadowrun um, did that with uh, with people. And I there are some other games. I feel like Zvihunter did it, and um, maybe there's been a few. I mean, yeah, it, it's I've I've seen that happen before. It, it's pretty cool. I think that's a pretty cool. Like, you know, hey, if you want to pay some extra cash and have yourself like in a game book. You know, staring out at people for hundreds of years. That's pretty that's pretty neat. I mean, we did this even before I got into tabletop game design. I had like a video game I was working on for their Kickstarter. One of the things was we have a few nameless NPCs in the game that we don't have a lot of details on them. Um if you pay this amount of much into the Kickstarter, we'll just build the character to look the way you want them to yeah. and we'll build them into the direct game itself yeah it's actually a very big thing um i kickstart probably way too many board games that then that's good for me and it's a very common thing in board games uh to to um kickstart um uh putting your name into the game as like on like a card or um mm -hmm. into the lore um such as like like BattleTech, they actually um, there was a, a thing to actually put you into the official lore of the universe um, for a certain amount of money uh, with your name or any name that you chose, really. I could definitely say that with Battletech, especially given how large the setting is. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could put a name in anywhere and it may only show up once um, or it may, you know, or it yeah. may become a recurring thing if people like it, I guess. But. It's the kind of thing that Battletech in particular has such a wide, like, ridiculous amount of lore. So, like, if you look at, like, say, their in-game uh, sports thing, like, they have the Solaris games where it's, like, basically Battletech blood sports almost, except that, like, they can eject and such. But the idea is it's, like, arena-based battle. They have a very explicit list of who has actually participated every year and who has won every year. And 
people do track that very closely. So if you wanted to be one of the people that actually won in one of those years, that would actually transfer over to a lot of people that would actually know about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly common thing in in board games. Is just what I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to say. So it's not, um, you know, that's that's something that you could definitely take is you know insert insert your character or insert your your name into the lore of this world. Oh, actually, sorry. One thing that's slightly off topic, but it's directly related to this. Um, I learned, I think it was yesterday, this was really interesting how they handled it. Um, the Battletech cartoon basically conflicted with some of the actual in-game lore, so it's considered not canon, but they made it canon by actually including it in the setting as this is an official thing that happened in the setting was this cartoon was played as a holovid in the Battletech setting as a propaganda piece for kids. <laughs> That's the most ham-fisted <laughs> But it works. I mean, I guess. If, if it works. If it works. If you have to, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, yeah. you could have a whole episode just talking about the weird shit of Battletech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean, Warhammer's the same way, right? Warhammer's yeah. got all this crazy crap in it because it's got had it's just had like how how many writers have written for Warhammer over the years? It's just a ton. There's no, there's, it's impossible to keep that consistent because it just is. There's no, you, mm -hmm. you can't do it. Like, there's different stories have different demands, obviously, and. Yeah. I mean, you don't have a Kevin Fahey of Warhammer, you know. No. I mean, maybe you do now, where someone is is like the yeah. official like lore scholar and. Everything, I don't. But... I don't think so. I don't think there's a, a that guy at Warhammer. I think there's like, I think they have a team, I, and this is how I think it. I believe it actually works. I believe they have a team of, of those guys, basically lore people that are designing new lore and sort of trying. They don't, as far as I understand they don't care too much about overwriting old stuff because mm -hmm. they have this philosophy of conflict makes it more real like conflicting things like is like history like i mean remember like these are british writers that were raised on like <laughs> like british history that is just like it's just conflicts all over the place like it's just it, i mean history is contradictory to begin with but like British history, even more so, has all kinds of weird shit in it. Um, you know, there's there's history of two different sides winning the same battle in some places, and I mean that's that's all over. But that but the idea is that that makes that's inculcated in the British culture, and that 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 thing comes up in Warhammer for that reason. Um, so they just they don't they that's a feature, not a bug to them. Like that's just the way real history is. It's just it's messy and. It, it gets rewritten all the time and we you discover new stuff like it's oh, kind yeah. of neat to see like the net like the procession of the necrons waking up from like third edition to now like they're more like more of their shit has awoken and they're more complicated and 
there's 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 a cool thing that kind of happens with that as like the, the history of the thing gets filled in like back mm. history and whatnot well that um, was something that Karis Marwith had been doing explicitly in his game was the the whole issue of there were rumors and some of them are true and some of them are misinformation and some of them there's misinformation on the surface but there's like a grain of truth somewhere in there as well and i've always kind of liked that concept myself where it's like okay there's like 17 different myths about this group Mm-hmm. Each of them has a core of truth somewhere in there, but good luck <laughs> finding it. Basically creating stereotypes for your own world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, you know. The idea of based on a true story is actually really good for setting up things in such a way that, yeah, this feels real because we've gotten like four different reports of the same thing and they're all kind of different, but they all kind of have overlapping sections. Like this does feel more real in a way. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, so aside from having like a team of writers go at one concept for, you know, 30 years or whatever, um, <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way to do that in, in, in a game, in, in an RPG for fledgling designers out there? Is there a way to create like a, I don't, I don't even know if there's any advice there that's so actionable. I, I can give but, some. Okay. Game design okay. document. So <laughs> I've actually done this with a couple of my species. So like Nicotin and the Cubian uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. So how I actually ended up doing it was I took like a bunch of different mythologies and basically said they're all right and they're all wrong. So if you look at like QB, they're based off of a mixture of things like European fae, mm-hmm. of like succubi and incubi, of demons, and a number of other related myths that are all sort of vaguely similar. So it's like because they're a mashup of all of these things, the actual in-lore explanation is that all of the myths are based on the reality that this species is the origin of the myths, and that all the myths themselves are misinterpretations of things that are technically actually true. So instead of having to come up with like, a team of writers to write for 30 years on it. I just looked at like all of these different mythologies and used those as the different writers that are doing all the takes on what I'm saying is the original source material, even though it's post hoc. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's one of those things that you would do with, um, with any kind of like heavy, like setting based system is, um, the, another word for it I've heard is is creating a um, a world bible essentially, which is just um, a grand, grandiose, huge, enormous document in which you just have information about each faction, each race, each you know, each town that's mentioned, um, each uh, each just like holiday, like uh, you know, drilling down way deep into the system. Um, a big resource for that is a. Uh, it's a site called World Anvil. I was just about uh, to mention. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Where people where people just go in and 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 do these things and create and create their worlds. Um, uh, so I don't know where I was going with that, but that's that's just the example that that came to my head. 
Um, no, it's it's a good one, and, and shout out to World Anvil. They're 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 really cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, just on top, just what you can. I I it's been so long since I've logged in there, but there's I just I just went back to it, and it has come a long way since the last time I looked at it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean. Yeah. Honestly, and they have a, I mean, just to, you know, you know, plug them a little bit more. They have an event every year, roughly early summer in which it's like 30 days, 30 articles in which you write 30 articles based upon their writing prompts for mm. each day of the, of the month. Um, and then at the end, you know, you get vote, everyone votes who's the best and all that, all that, all that junk. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, they, they do good work there. Um, I've, I've only I've only just briefly like you know touched the surface of what of what's going on in that place. Um, I started I started doing it for for my world in the game that I'm running uh, GMing, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I quickly became overwhelmed with just the sheer amount of options because you know building a world is hard. Building our own world would be hard. Right. There's also issues with these kinds of things like prompts. Like I've run into. I've tried to do these for a couple of times, but there's issues, especially if you're doing anything fairly unique. Like if you're just doing, well, it's Earth, but different, then you can usually nail most of the prompts. If you're doing something that doesn't line up with like the standard way things are done, like for example, the Seorsa planet itself is, it's a it's a designer planet like it is custom built and changed on a on a daily basis like there wasn't a mountain there yesterday but now there is kind of thing it doesn't match like a lot of the prompts because the prompts just assume that it's basically earth but different in a lot of cases like mm -hmm. well what about like the the oceans, like, what about the seafaring civilizations that arose on this planet? It's like they don't exist because there are no seafaring nations and most of water, unless it's specifically to make you sail across an area for like a quest or something for a challenge for somebody, the ocean does not exist. Well, there is no seafaring peoples because they don't exist on this planet. And it's because it's such a weird setup for a planet that it's like it doesn't fall under the normal situations and rules for this. So I, I don't mind prompts and such, but it's like I'm never going to win one of these uh, challenges because I usually can't even complete them because they don't fit with this setting. I mean, that's I mean, that's that's definitely fair. Um, I think I think you could probably twist some of the prompts like, you know name an ancient seafaring civilization that that has gone into into decline um you could you could take that prompt and list why there never was a, a ancient seafaring civilization or like um why uh, currently one w might arise but is having trouble or something like that like it's it's i mean you're twisting the prompt to your own own volition which usually is in violation of the rules of the prompt but at the same time if your world doesn't have it then i'm sure i'm sure no one's gonna you know come and like come at you and, and yell at you i mean maybe they will i don't know people are they crazy might, um, yeah people do get oddly very picky about certain things like that mm -hmm. like 
it is strange how they get really invested emotionally in it. It's like, well, you're doing it wrong. And it's like, oh, you don't have an ocean on your planet. There's something very wrong with your planet. That's not, that's not how like an ecosystem works. And it's like, yeah, but this is like a custom terraformed planet. They're yeah. able to do all sorts of stuff that you can't normally do. Now I could use like uh, a seafaring uh, civilization on a different planet, but now I'm getting into like, oh, well, I have like dozens of planets I can throw at people. That That's kind of cheating at this point. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I wanted to to bring up again, um, kind of with the uh, legacy thing, um, mm -hmm. I, another, I know we're, I know I'm taking the conversation backwards, but uh, another example that I thought of was the, uh, was the Star Trek Adventures game. Um, they, they use a kind of a, um, and it's been done before, but they use a system in which uh, um, for a while, every month they would release a, a, um, kind of an, an adventure for all the players to go on. And then at the end of the adventure, there's usually a choice to be made. Um, I, 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 I've only, the few that I looked at were, were usually like a binary choice, like help these people or, you know, or leave these people to their fate, you know, like mm -hmm. stuff like that. But um, what they did was they would, they would prompt all, all, all the GMs um, who ran mm -hmm. these like things. What were your players' choices? And then they would write into the into the lore of the of the world, um, based upon the choices, uh, like something happened. Like so, but they would write it in in a way so that, um, like, say you chose to save, you know, uh, in a mm -hmm. civilization that was in decline. Uh, they would write it in a way that, say, most people, you, you know, chose to leave them alone. Um, they would write it so that even though you tried to save the civilization in decline, like they, they didn't work out or they got onto your ship and got into a big old fight and, you know, mm -hmm. everyone, like all the people killed each other or something, you know, <laughs> like, like something like, like weird like that. Like, um, but like they, it was, it was kind of a legacy system in which, you know, your choices kind of mattered. I, they didn't really in the end, but uh, there was a definite, um, sense of like a growing universe that was more than just your ship even though technically you didn't interact with any of those other groups it's it was an it was an interesting way to do it um that's I've awesome i've seen something very similar that they've done before which was like you were mentioning dota 2 but league of legends actually did something a long time ago before they overhauled how they did stuff and one of the major ones that stood out was the insetting war between Ionia and Noxus, which they basically had different characters for these two sides. And what they did was they set up like a tournament for the the players that you'd basically have to pick like the sides in the war and pick like the different characters for it. And whoever won the tournament changed the outcome of what happened with the war. And then they that's, built that into the lore itself. That's super cool. And I really like that idea specifically for the RPG, like the tabletop space, because I think that's so easy to translate. There's, there's player investment baked in there. There's, 
active participation in the game mm. over a longer I guess I term. Uh, Legend of Five Rings, the the card game, the the winner of card game tournaments affects the lore. Okay, I just had to say that. Yeah. Back to mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And they definitely that was the, I think one of the first few ones that did that in the card game space. I think, um, that was their their big thing, right? Was that mm-hmm. every new set was basically a follow up from how the last set ended, right? Yeah. yeah, Legend of Five Rings is both a card game and an RPG. Yeah. Right. Mm. I think. And, and political and hell. Yeah. Yes. And political hell is right. Yeah, poor people. Uh, <laughs> um, what about other games or other media that people have interacted with recently that they found really innovative? Um, like just in terms of just listing it, and we can maybe think of how. Some of those elements could be translated into into games. Like I know. Oh, um, oh go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I know um, Hades was one that came up for me, which is the video game, um, and they had some roguelike elements. Like I really liked how the storytelling in that game was enhanced through failure. Um, you you would run through the game, and basically whether you succeed or fail, um, you got to. Uh, become stronger as a character at the end of it. Um, so you always felt like there was this forward progress, even in failure. And it meant that failure became almost a reward where you got to experience more of the story. You got to experience more of like the, the abilities of your character or, or try something new. Um, and I, I don't know exactly how easily that can translate to an RPG, but sort of normalizing like the 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 dungeon crawl aspect and just saying like if you fail it's not the end you you carry something forward or your experience is always there or something like that um, and I think that that would be an interesting way of um, changing how the game plays and learning a lesson from something that's innovative in the art the video game space yeah I I agree I mean I've I've been trying to think about this. Since I mean we've been we've talked about this sort of thing like how to how to make it so games don't hit fail states right mm-hmm. like that's that's a podcast we've done before where we've talked about um, ways in which uh, many games have um, particularly recently uh, have innovated away fail states from their core mechanisms in one way or another either by saying like the, the story can't head in that direction by putting like story rails guardrails on it or by saying something like um th- this is by you can you can kill a player only with player consent uh there's games that do that where it's where it's like the hit points are one thing but don't the, the character will continue unless the player relinquishes con- voluntary control over it mm-hmm. right um and then there's the there's the kind of what happens when failure would indicate that the story would stop in some sense um and what and this is a, something that i think has been built in to the 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 i hate to call it the dnd mentality because i don't it's not exclusive to that it, I mean, it's in tons of games. I mean, pretty much all early games before, like what, two, the 2000s and something like that are guilty of that, where it's 
make this role to progress. Right. And it's progress is, is the reward of a good role is progress through the story. And so what that implies is that the, the story is, cannot be advanced by failure. And so you have this, you have a, a, a baked in false dichotomy in that is, that is spoken to you by the rule set um, that, that, that failure should not advance the story. Uh, and, and once you get out from underneath that and you, I, I, I powered by the apocalypse does it uh, uh, like early games that sort of got out from under that. What um, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to, to think of one off the top off the top of my head, but you know, anything where the story would be carried through on the failure uh, into the next interesting thing happening. Uh, and that's part of the rules, not something the GM does, because GMs have been doing that forever. But in, in baked into the rule set is something that's been more more recent, I think. And um, it, it, trying to make that a thing where there's real consequences on the failure is really tough then, right? Because the uh, the opposite argument that you hear that I have heard uh, from from I think I've heard it most from the OSR crowd, but they would say that like having a soft landing at the end of a failure is bad because mm. it discourages success in some sense. It's like it doesn't it, it makes it so that that you're not really as invested because you know that the game, the, 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 the fun will continue, but the, for them, that that's part of the fun, right? Like having, having that moment of like, Oh, my character goes explodey or I failed the role. Ha ha. Um, that's, that's part of it for them in the same sense that a roguelike is, is the part of the fun is, is dying, but also part of the fun is like seeing how far you could get. Right, like yeah, I, my, my and so argument to that. Though, no, I, I, I is, understand. I'm okay. I just have to sneak in for a moment. Is that the reason it works in a roguelike is you can make a new character in a roguelike in three yes. seconds. You're expected to fail. The game's mechanics are built around that failure. That oh, you did lose, but here's some advantage you got that will make it easier next time that's right. not how their games work in osr typically it's, not that's it what still I'm saying. takes like an hour to make a new character that you no longer are invested in because they're just going to die again and you don't get any benefit for the failure you only get penalized as a player there's there's no this will be easier on you next time you have learned something from it so right that's I, what i'm saying i don't think yeah. they're thought process works uh, yeah i was gonna get there sorry <laughs> sorry anyway um yeah the i but 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 because there are there are mechanical barriers to making that that um that roguelike experience work but the other thing is is like it's it's more like a it's more like a dark souls experience than a roguelike experience because the amount of progress that you lose from losing a character is meaningful. Um, mm -hmm. 
and so there's a bigger weight attached to the to the um to the to the to the threat of of death now i think that there those systems don't do enough to empower the player to avoid those things in most cases i think there's um i think too many games rely on gotcha moments uh exploiting a, a you know a player's intuition about how the game should go or how the the world should work or something like that and it's not a real puzzle in some sense it's a it's a um it, there's there's either uh you know either a no chance to avoid it or you know some weird fake um, difficulty fake difficulty yeah yeah exactly so there i think there's a point there that's that's valid uh i think i think there's ways we can design games uh such that we have um i'm trying to design a game such that pain, there is painful failure in in conjunction with a story that doesn't halt when there's failure but like it's the painful failure and then having a defense against the painful failure and then somehow making that defense also bad for you in some sense uh that is well, like you the mentioned about dark souls actually mm -hmm. is a good example of this because even in dark souls if you die you don't actually lose stuff if you manage to get back to your body in one piece and like where you died from and right. recover it so they aren't even doing the dark souls issue yeah i think i think that's probably a fair argument i think there's there should be ways to um uh uh you know the one of, i think I, I come back to this game uh some, somewhat often despite having not actually played it uh phoenix dawn command is a game where you you level up by dying what you sacrifice your life for that matters and so there's you know there's a sense of finality baked into into your story uh and you're not by putting it like that it's like you're 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 making it so that the thing that is so often the failure fail state in other rpgs is a is the progress state and you're, and, and now it inverts the, the 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 what can be a threat even you know they're now now it's like okay combat's not combat's a th a tool you use now but it's not it's not a means to an end like because you can you're you can be you can you know you're going to throw your life away for something you're going to get to a point where you are exhausted and you basically take something with you um and you uh that that having that heroic moment built into the mechanics of the game is uh something that's i think more games should learn from it's hmm. a great point yeah um, yeah i was gonna keep throwing out what um what other media have you guys interacted with that um Think. Oh, and yeah. Hades was one. I, I totally played it. I I I was <laughs> I was talking my to my friend Steve uh, the other day because I was just so blown away by how good its its cycle is, mm -hmm. like how fast it gets back on, and yeah. how how good the learning curve slash difficulty curve slash power curve is. Like how well they're matched. Like it's it's really it's really they're really well done. It's really well done. Impressively well done. I agreed. 
Yeah. Okay. I'd actually like to cover a few things that are not video games, because I know the obvious one is what? video games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a couple of things that I've actually adopted for my game that did not come from video games. They came from other, other media forms. So, for example, the whole call-outs thing, like, as talking to this uh, about this a little bit earlier today with someone that is in my game and it's like the concept of like um, during like a big boss battle combat isn't just all that's going on it's like psychological warfare as well like in the game's mechanics every two turns there's a brief rest period where the characters can do things like make encouraging speeches to rally yeah to rally their allies or impassioned arguments that they've come too far to die here and this isn't over kind of thing or maybe to reaffirm their enemy that yeah you killed my father prepare to die kind of thing right this was not from video games this was from things like wrestling and anime and like every action movie like, mm -hmm. you get this in pretty much any other form of media, even if you go all the way back to, like, the concept of the epic plays, like the epic mm -hmm. uh, poems, like freaking the Iliad and shit. Like, they have periods where they're fighting, and then they stop, and they bitch at each other for a while. Like, this is something that has been around for thousands of years mm -hmm. that yes we actually in combat we include the story in the middle of combat like people are still talking they're still giving speeches they still pause and discuss these kinds of things and there's been rules in these for games for ages as well like at least as far back as like D&D 2nd Edition, they had rules for it, but the rules were constraining. Like, they weren't rules in the sense of, oh, yes, you get an epic speech and you can call out this enemy and be like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna whoop your ass so hard, you have no idea. Mm -hmm. It was more like, yeah, if you use more than 14 words, I think it was, then you lose your turn. Yes. So they basically did the opposite of what they were supposed to do with this. Oh, uh, is that I? Are you serious? That doesn't sound that. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's in second edition AD and D uh, books somewhere. I don't remember exactly where it was, but I've okay. read well, it again. I don't think. But I don't yeah, think anybody like, played with that rule. No, no, but there's. But it is in the rules that okay. it, they referenced the concept uh, yeah. of talking in battle but it was in a bad way it wasn't used in a way that this is constructive to the game and it was like well they were looking at it from the mechanized form of oh yeah if somebody's giving like you know the two minute long anime speech where they're talking in the middle of combat somebody's just going to turn around and hit them mm -hmm. and it's like yes practically that is what would happen but 
that's not good storytelling. And that's why every single other storytelling format that exists from like radio plays to movies, don't do that unless it's as a joke. Like this guy, there's like a cut scene where like basically Power Rangers mm -hmm. show up and they start giving a, a speech about how they're the good guys and they're going to defeat you and one of your characters because you're playing the demons interrupts their speech and shoots them. And then right. they throw a fit because you're not allowed to do that in the middle of their heroic speech. Right. It's it's the it's the it's the Indiana Jones pull a gun on the swordsman thingy. It's it's that. It's that that's the moment of inversion. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally I totally get hear you. Um it's uh, but yeah, no, it is it's it's good storytelling to have those things in. Like you those are the moments, you know. Even even if it's something as 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 <laughs> even if it's like an Arnold Schwarzenegger esque, you know, stick around, like <laughs> one of those, the one liners from yeah, the eighties. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's still something that it happens. But it's like mm -hmm. you know, you Montoya, you've killed my father, prepare to die. It's like that was yeah. a major part of that scene because he was losing until he started repeating that over and mm -hmm. over and it basically reminded him of why he was there. Yep. It was like, I can't afford to just let this guy get away with, you know, having killed my father in cold blood. I have to avenge him. And that basically pulled him out of losing and to a position where he was basically revitalized. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, uh, that 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 makes you think. Like I think, hmm. You know, is that something that I want to specifically call out? Like how how because I do have something like that that's similar. That it's more reflexive. It's sort of like when something stressful happens to your troop, you react, and you can react by, like you know, basically steering them into the danger, or. Hmm by um sort of you know being more cautious or steering them away from the danger and to the extent that you do that well is 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 a role um so there's i have something similar to that although it doesn't really i i maybe i should reference it as like a speech moment as like a what do you tell mm -hmm. them yeah mm -hmm. that would be interesting That's interesting yeah mm -hmm. I did at least, but I think that it is an important part of, you know, storytelling. Um, yeah, another one, another one that comes to mind that you managed to give me a good segue to it was the Indiana Jones thing. Mm -hmm. But it's a different part of Indiana Jones that stands out, and that is traps. Traps in games suck almost invariably because it's a big part of tabletop role-playing games like you go into the dungeon there's traps in the dungeon we know that we want the traps in the dungeon to feel like the indiana jones thing like okay we step and then we notice oh the pressure plate under my foot is going down and i hear rolling behind me it's a giant boulder isn't it I, there's that sensation of this is 
definitely a trap, but it's a trap in the sense that there's a pause between when you discover the trap and when the bad thing about the trap happens, which is not handled in tabletop games very well normally. And the interesting part of the trap is how do you get out of it? Whereas in basically every tabletop game up until I made this realization, I had never seen one that actually handled it in the sense of the interesting part of the trap is how you get out of the trap. Mm -hmm. It's like how you avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, once it's triggered, oh, you get hit by the trap. Like, like maybe you get to roll a reflex save to dodge the trap. And it's like, that's not the fun part of the trap. This is never right. the fun part of the trap in movies. So I ended up building my trap system around the idea of, based on your your senses and your awareness of and stuff around you, and things like that, you get more time, like more discrete actions to disarm the trap or try to avoid the trap, but the trap is still triggered. So you get that sensation of, as you're walking along, you start to sink down a little bit more on that one step as the pressure plate goes down. You have time to actually do something about this now. It's not you're immediately screwed, it's that you have that period of what are we going to do? We only have like a few tries to get out of this before we run out of time and and all of that sand that's pouring into the room basically suffocates us. What are we going to do in this time? We have we have to think of something really quick kind of thing. And that's... Oh, okay. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, but I'm curious. How do you, how do you do? The, what happens if it doesn't work? Well, I know what happens. You're, you're in your game. They just you die, and then you respawn, and then you have to go face the thing that killed you. To yeah, right? that kind of thing. But right, it's like, um, I can get away with it in my game because of that. But you probably won't die. There's probably a way out of it. Like the the biggest, most important point is that you're given time to do something about it and you have actions that you can take that can avoid the situation like the the issue that i've always had with traps and games is that you're not actually getting to do the fun part about the trap which is how do we get ourselves out of this mess mm-hmm. And I think that can be ex- explored a lot better than it has been. And I do think that, like, the Indiana Jones movies are, in particular, probably the key to figuring that out, because everybody loves the, the traps mm-hmm. in the Indiana Jones movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I you're not wrong. Yeah. There's a... So that's something we can learn from, right? Mm-hmm. This is... There's something we can take from from media, the Indiana Jones movies in this case, where it's uh, there 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 is a particular sensation that Cat is uh, uh, honing in on that I think is definitely what players are looking for in the trap game, like that. What's that noise? Um, <laughs> what did we just step on? 
wait, why is the light different? Um, wait, all the birds stop chirping. Like you, that, like there's something where it moves from first inclination of danger, where everything sort of slows down, and and adrenaline kicks in because like your body's your body's in that just just got kicked in that flight or flight state by some some out of place stimuli. And now it's like everything's on high alert, and you're just like, "Oh, what's going on?" And you 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 get the first instant of the something bad happens, and then the action. But you you knew something bad was happening, so okay, we're gonna start running before our we we get any other senses. We're just gonna do that, or hit the dirt, or however. And then you can keep going with that thing, and you can keep the right. fiction going with that thing. But you, it, I think it's about like zooming into the granular moments um and 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 making that time feel longer but by by expanding out like okay now the boulders fight you know um you can hear it a hundred feet behind you and now what do you do next it's like okay is are there any crevices on the wall did there's something in front of me or can i dive like no, there's hallways. Like okay, I just I just book it as fast as I can, and hopefully something will show. Okay, so that's what happens. It's fifty feet behind you. You've gone twenty five or four more feet. There's a crevice you can see in the floor. Uh, you know, twenty feet ahead, but you know that the stone's gonna, you know. So now make a roll or something like that. See if you get there, or maybe if the thing knocks you into the thing, and you take some damage as the stone plows over you but you get close enough to to uh for it to not crush you or something like that right uh, yeah i think the individual game mechanics will mm -hmm. depend upon the game itself but i think that if you're going to include traps in the games the focus should be on not how we've traditionally always done it in tabletop games but focusing on like what you said like it's it's that moment of oh shit, what do we do about this? It's, it is the question, what do you do? And that's the biggest strength of, like one of the biggest strengths of tabletop role-playing games is we can handle that kind of situation where it's like, this is an open-ended question, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And I think that games are getting better at moving towards these open-ended questions that, the tabletop games are actually suited to, to dealing with. But I don't think we're really fully there yet of nudging us properly into that direction just yet. Well, it's hard also, right? Because there's, yeah. there's the opposite end of designing um, for that kind of thing is properly, properly, um, I don't know how to really say this. It's not like nudging the player, prompting the player might be better, but like some something where um, you're asking the player to give the game an input in that moment, and the quality of the experience that follows um, is going to depend on the quality of that input. So you you want there's there's ways that I have seen games um, sort of draw out the best fictional instincts of the players that that i think we need to exploit better uh, in general 
um, whatever the instinct is that, that, that we have to tell stories, there are ways of prompting that better and worse, right? And so I think we can move towards better promptings to get to, um, to let players sort of fully explore their own headspace in on the issue if that makes mm. sense mm. you know yeah. so that we're not that we're not so that it doesn't feel like we're pushing them down a certain thing but like opening up possibilities yeah again i i think that this goes back to a lot of things we've said in the past before about like you know building scaffolding like mm -hmm. here's some stuff you can do um here's like an open-ended space fill fill the fill the blank kind of thing right but there is a blank there we're looking for a noun. Do you have any nouns? Any nouns that would work in this situation? Mm -hmm. And I think that is probably important for us to to do more in general. Yeah, it's it's tricky because you have to. It's hard to train people to be good storytellers, right? And so there's 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 an element which you, you like your hands off as a designer right and then at that point whatever people try to do choose to do at the table um is in some is it's weird right because there's this thing where like you're gonna play a game <clears throat> we could sit down and play a game and have a terrible experience with it and um and it be totally not the designer's fault uh, because it was something we interacted with badly at the table or didn't gel with us but or or even even like the 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 thing the the fiction we came up with at the table was terrible like that can be a thing uh and and it's not the designer's fault but we blame the game yeah we also give well not everyone That's but a lot of people do right? also give props to the game for the things that the game didn't do yeah conversely the same is true right i i completely agree like conversely the same is true it, it it you know you can have you can be congratulating uh 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 any given game for an amazing experience that you had uh based more upon your own good instincts as a storyteller and and you you know the gm's uh ability to walk the line of um keeping the game uh full of tension but uh just riding that edge of and 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 doing it well so that everybody's really engaged and like but there's but the pacing's also good and all that stuff <laughs> oh is God. not the game's fault okay oh, there's me. there's something we may have learned from another media format that we really mm -hmm. shouldn't have and that is cooking websites because if you ever go to one of those, it is the weirdest fucking thing ever. Because it's like, oh, here's like a, a cookie recipe. It's like five out of five stars. Best cookie recipe I've ever had. Also, here's like the 17 things that I changed to make it better. And it's like, wait, you just house ruled like the entire recipe. And then you said that the recipe was amazing. Why? How is it five stars if you changed everything in it? There's like the only thing you didn't change was the amount of sugar in it. What the hell? <laughs> uh -huh. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, whatever. I mean, in some sense, it's it's real because the game gets them to the spot where they are going to do that, right? So, I, I like Dungeons and Dragons Third Edition many times got me to a place where it was a really fun night with my friends and could another game have done that better i don't know probably not at that time like i think at that time that was the game we all wanted to play and we were all like that was it that was our thing you know that was it was just suiting us at that time in our lives uh all concurrently and uh you know that wouldn't be a game that i would be necessarily excited to play again uh but it's the thing where where and i at looking back it wasn't the mechanics helped because they gave this this gave gave me the scaffolding to build a power fantasy around and um you know there are other games that wouldn't have done that as well and so but does it but do the mechanics build a story in the way that we're looking to uh have a game facilitate building a story no not really they give give you something to hang your hat on but like it it relies more heavily upon um that space in between the players and i am including the gm in, in the that that group um to to imagine collectively imagine the narrative and we're all aimed at scaffolding the creation of that narrative more heavily so that it it sort of doesn't get in the way of the storytelling it sort of freely allows the story to move in the direction the story kind of wants but then coming up at the points where it needs um grounding i suppose where you have to say like okay this is what happens for sure right now um there's a moment of uncertainty or drama or or something like that and we need to know what happens in the next second or or the next beat of the story and we need to rely on some we have to have some ground under our feet to make that decision so that's where the the mechanics come in to say here's where you have the grounds to say uh make this call uh as the players and I am including GM in that, right? So, right. Um, you know, for 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 us, where we've been aiming is like making sure that you only feel that ground when you really need it, and then sort of once once you're done with that, then you can keep making really weird and interesting choices in keeping with the narrative. But we're not gonna you know in in some sense we want the narrative to continue no matter the outcome of that that grounding like we want we want to know the story of what happened after uh even if even if it doesn't work out the way we wanted so there's and but that's how you build i think that's there that's a it's a philosophy behind building mechanics that i think we we are I don't know. I, I guess I'm speaking for you guys, but like it just seems that there's a consensus where it's like these mechanics should work when they need to work, and then get the hell out of the way when you don't mm -hmm. when you don't need them. Um, That's yeah. Generally, been one of the biggest 
compliments on my game so far from the playtesters has been they have said that repeatedly is that yeah they when the mechanics are not needed they they basically don't exist it's only when we actually need them to resolve something that the mechanics actually even show up right right and that's that's what generally should happen i mean but it's like what what is resolved is is what's important there when mm-hmm. the mechanics show up yeah so it's to the extent that you can keep playing through the narrative um it it you're it's working right i i forget where the hell we were going I am so far in the weeds right now. Okay, well, <laughs> let's take a moment and go back. What was I saying? Let's actually go back to like the point of the stream again, which was like, what other um, media sources can we draw inspiration or interesting game mechanics and such from? And I do have one more that is not a video game that had a very, very large impact on how I built my my combat system, oddly enough, which was Kill Bill. Specifically, the fight with the the Japanese schoolgirl with the meteor hammer. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Gogo Yubari. Oh, my God. How do I have that on the tip of my tongue? That's weird. (laughs) Yeah, but the, the idea of that, though, it it actually gave me further inspiration, but it was of the sense that ex- exotic weapons in, like, say, D&D have mm-hmm. always been, like, you can have them, but we're going to heap on, like, tons and tons of restrictions because they're difficult to use and they're only good in rather limited circumstances. And you can have them, but they're not going to be any better than a normal weapon. Also, they're not really going to be any different stats than a normal weapon so it's basically the exact same thing but it's harder to use it's like that's not interesting when i saw like the kill bill thing it was like i don't know anything about this weapon but this is amazing i want it (laughs) I, I, i i want to have like if I'm describing like a combat scene, I want my combat scene to actually show the the fact that yeah, they're like flinging this thing not just around, but like they hold their arm out and they wrap it around and they switch directions with it, and they're basically dancing about trying to change like the momentum of this thing. And I want my weapons to actually feel like these exotic weapons and the thing that also stands out to me about that that i was thinking at the time is that yeah you know a sword or a spear or an axe these were fairly common in you know in reality in combat because you were using like a thousand plus soldiers at a time there's only so many materials to outfit them there's only so many there's only so much room to use them like you have to have like generic one size fits all weapons for the most part because they can't carry a a tool for every different situation 
-hmm. Whereas if you looked at like, say, the concept of actual ninjas, like not the romanticized fantasy versions, but like an actual ninja, they had mostly tools that were very limited in use. They were almost all exotic weapons, but they all had very specific purposes for things like, you know, getting, like climbing a wall, they'd have like claws for that they could hold onto that it was good for scaling a wall. But if somebody caught you on the other side, then you still had something that could double as a weapon, but it wouldn't be a great weapon unless it was like a single person in a narrow hallway across the wall that you literally just repelled up. So exotic weapons are exactly the kinds of things you'd get in most of these games. So like, you know, the concept of an adventuring group. It's like, oh, wait, these people have much higher training than the average soldier because they're heroes. So this means that they're going to have more complicated to use weapons. They have a lot more money for their... Uh, special unique equipment. The fights that they get into tend to be in either very large open areas compared to like a battlefield where you don't have a thousand people around you. You might have three or four that you're fighting or like one ogre. Like this is like the perfect ideal situation. These are the these are the people that should be using exotic weapons almost entirely. Like if there was ever a situation for exotic weapons, it is the stereotypical adventurer concept. So why don't we use them more? Like we should actually build our games very heavily around these, not just existing and being like, oh, they have a stat bar, but I think that they should actually be the forefront of storytelling in combat that this is the kind of thing that makes for very evocative like combat in such a way that it tells a story just descriptively like you can tell like a story about people like spinning around in circles and like doing these exotic dances in combat and flipping over each other and such. And I think we should do this more often. I mean, you have a real bee in your bonnet about this particular topic, clearly, but I don't disagree with you. I mean, so. <laughs> like, um, I, I, it, you know, for, for a certain type, type of game, like that your game very, very much is, like I agree. Like I think many games don't take their their premises far enough. I think that's uh, I think that's a, a, a general issue. Um, uh, but I think in particular, yeah, like the the concept of adventurers is super weird. And of course, and like the, the closest thing we have to those people in the real world were you know really highly paid high level mercenaries, and those guys were all nuts. Like they were all in some way crazy and they were all, you know, a lot of them were very flamboyant and had all stylistic fittings and weird stuff. I mean, this is a weird group of people, right? They have chosen a very strange profession uh, and um, or fallen into actually usually is what how it goes. 
uh, a very strange profession and they're not normal like that's that's their their defining feature almost um and i think there's a lot of games that just don't lean into that enough uh when they say these people are special they don't go you know yeah but they're fundamentally like people and they still have blah, blah, blah. no 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 they should be weird they should like <laughs> i agree like adventurers should be should be strange it shouldn't be like a farm boy who just like picked up his 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 grandfather's sword and was defending the village nah that's 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 cool i mean everybody does that once we all do that i'm not saying that you shouldn't do that but i i feel like there's there's hmm my character concept that comes closest to that (laughs) (laughs) well so but but what i'm saying is is the prompting that we design into games should push for more than that because we can't where it can and it should so yeah i agree with you it's not just that it's that it makes more sense because like it's really weird how like if you look at like a lot of the armor designs for games it's like well we've gone through like a ton of research and this is the actual armor that they use in actual combat for like you know a knight and such and it's like yes but you're not looking at their suit of armor that they use for dress occasions like they show up at a fancy ball they're in like ornamental decorative armor like this is something for oh we're going to meet like the king of this uh foreign country we don't just dress in our normal armor we have like fancy special armor that looks really fucking weird that we do this for it's like it's gold plated it's got like the chest piece is built in the shape of like the head of a lion it's like this should be what the adventurers are wearing because that's what makes sense for these types of people. I don't know. It's just <laughs> something that you do see this in, like, in movies. You do see this in uh, stories and such. Like, if they're if they're talking about this unique heroic character, they don't give them the same generic armor that every rank and file soldier has. They have something personalized and customized to their personal aesthetic preferences this is part of what makes them stand out it's like you don't get it just doesn't make sense for them to be like i am a generic soldier number 4832 it's then you're not a heroic character right but some games can be not uh, not about the heroic character you can they can be but that's not what a lot of the games are if you're going to be like this is the average farm boy and they got thrown into this then yeah you totally use that aesthetic you lean into it but that's not what like the standard dnd style character is and it's so weird that the like all the armor you see in the book looks like a generic soldier and it's like why you're not playing a generic soldier That's true. That's very true. Hmm. Um, before 
because it's getting kind of late. I, I wanted to mm-hmm. make sure, Kavar, uh, if you have a chance to uh, say something immediately. The only thing I've, I've played that isn't an RPG with my free time in the past eight months is Slay the Spire. Uh, oh, well, there you go. Well, what, what, can, what have you gleaned from that, if anything? Uh, Everything that makes Slay, everything that is good about Slay the Spire would not work in an RPG. Are you sure? I don't know. Sabrina seems to be disagreeing with you fairly through the uh, through yeah, the comments. She, <laughs> she might disagree with me. Okay, let me rephrase that. Everything that uh, the things that stick out of me as things that I like about it are th- are things that I do not want in an RPG experience. <laughs> so like I like that everything well okay I don't think it's okay there are some things that are like true of both but I don't think that's like learning something from an outside medium yeah I like clarity of purpose in both uh, I don't think that's something that we're learning from an outside medium mm-hmm. but but everything a lot of the positive things about Slay the Spire are how clearly defined everything is how this I mean, yes, uh, designing elegant structures is positive and something you should do, but they're not the same way. Actually, now I'm thinking about it, like, like there's a lot of things that they have in common, but I wouldn't say it's, like, things RPGs should learn from, because I don't really think of it that way. Like, oh, yes, the aesthetics, ma- the aesthetics match the, the abilities. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> I don't right. know. Like, yeah, there's things like that, but I don't really consider that like, oh, I do. Let me actually let me go back to my statement again. Actually, make it a real statement. Uh, well, yeah. The, go ahead. the real statement there is actually. God, what was I going to say? Never mind. Yeah, uh, Sabrina, the playability of the Spire for me is that somebody tossed together 6,000 mods for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not just that. Like, the base core mechanics are very good, uh, and it, and like all the base characters are very well designed, but there, but there are a lot of very cool mods for it. But what I was going to say is, uh, basically, everything that's like this that is good about that is well designed inside the Spire is not something that I want to write into an RPG. Like, it's not the type of RPG I want to write. And, like, not the type of RPG I'd be good at writing. And also... How should I phrase this? I get very different things out of the two experiences, so it's hard for me to make the correlations. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. A Slay the Spire run for me is 45 minutes so uh i mean i i still think that there are elements of that game that someone could tease apart like i really like the idea of having sort of a core character identity and then you have this drafting mechanic for what kinds of experiences your character has gone through and learned it it occurs to me that uh what's it called I, i feel really bad for forgetting it uh 
It occurs to me that your game is the most late Spyro uh, game oh, that exists. Praxis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Praxis is the most late Spyro RPG I've ever encountered, but... Fair. That, I'll, yeah. I'll take that as a compliment. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I think there's... Um, where Praxis is really open about how you want to define what you take from the experiences that have gotten you to that point. I think Slay the Spire has sort of uh, cards, I guess, that you draft that are set in the game. So you can encounter them in multiple different ways, or like you um, can choose how you want to build your character based on the types of cards that you're collecting or getting rid of. Um, and I, I like that idea. And there's something about like drafting, even if it was for um, drafting playbook abilities. Like if, if you'd imagine like playbooks as being I don't know, six pages. And then you'd say one page is for your strength abilities, one ability, one page is for your dexterity abilities. And each one was unique. And you just kind of went through and drafted a character based on each of these different six elements. Uh, you put that together and that was the kind of character that you played. Or you did it with like your level up abilities and you just drew from a deck and you had to pick one of the three that you got based on sort of, I don't know, that How sounds like not a game I would want to play, actually. But that's fair. I'm I'm throwing it out as sort of like it depends on what kind of game you're trying to to build with that mechanic as well. But I, I think there are some interesting gameplay elements that you can take from those mm -hmm. uh, video games or card games that I think you could incorporate into an RPG and and make something functional. And the reason that games like, say, The Spire or Hades stand out is because they have been successful in sort of breaking a mold within their respective domains. Uh, Slay The Spire is just somebody who uh, made a video game version of, uh, what's it called? And ran with it. Uh, and that's why it's good. <laughs> uh, sure. this, uh, I don't know why I want to get off this topic because I am a okay. so okay to get off the topic that one more thing I do want to cover before we we end this for tonight is from a video game I've tried to avoid them for the most part but there is one that I do think is very important that MMORPGs in particular are known for that, oddly enough, tabletop RPGs should be known for and aren't, which bugs me, which is the idea of like projected attacks. Now, this is something that was really heavily used in like the secret world, but it also showed up in like a lot of other cases, like the most stereotypical one I can think of is like the Anixia battle in World of Warcraft. Like you're fighting a big dragon. Anixia takes a deep breath. It's like, okay, the dragon's taking a deep breath. What do you do? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the important part that bugs me is it immediately goes to the question of something bad is going to happen in a moment. What do you do? That question is very important. This is like the key of like what makes things a game. Or, and it's like the biggest thing about like a tabletop game is you ask, what can you do? It's, come on. <laughs> what 
what do you do in D&D? Oh, I, uh, I don't do anything. I just roll a saving throw when, it, when she breathes fire at me. I don't have any active defense. I don't do anything. I have no interaction with this. It takes place automatically when the dragon does its fire attack on me. This is like the exact opposite of what a tabletop role-playing game should be doing, which is it should be asking, what do you do in this situation? Do you roll out of the way? Do you like set up your shield and hunker down beside it? Do you like try to drink like a fire resistance potion? Do you cast a spell quickly and hope it's fast enough? Like there should be a question here that has an answer that is not just, I let the game mechanics resolve this automatically for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what that's that's what the that's that was uh, Apocalypse World thing, right? That's the defy danger move. That's the that's the you get uh, here is danger. How are you? How are you not being dangered? Tell me. Tell me. Yeah, I think that's a bit. No, you you should tell open. me how you, how how you're not in danger now. Yeah, I think that's a bit of an open-ended way that. Mm -hmm. kind of cheats a bit because it's basically okay we haven't actually got a mechanic for this it's just um role played out um this is entirely on you to do all of the heavy lifting the game isn't going to do really anything just just tell us and we'll just go along with it like i don't think that's a great way to handle it but at least it's handling it not in a great way but I think that it's important that they are handling it. Any other thoughts on that? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, I, I think I think that was that was all I wanted to uh, get out there. Is that 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 is a thing? Um, I, I think it's also uh, we're. The slightly more complicated version of that is the way Blades in the Dark does it, where where it's a uh, you're asked to make a move, and then you can uh, if if the move doesn't work out, you have resistance, and then resistance is uh, rolled. Although I I think there's probably I think there's probably better ways of doing that, but then that but then harm goes through. So then there's a there's a you got into a situation, you narrated you know, enrolled in this way where there was this thing on the line and you knew it and then um, it went badly and now you can, you have a chance of absorbing the blow sort of thing. So it, 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 it breaks it down into a, a bit more, um, hmm. a bit more uh, granular than, uh, than uh, PBTA normally does. But um, yeah, if you want to make it more, complex than that and tell more of a story in that moment um or or have a more because generally speaking those the those those defy danger moments are a are a one and done type thing and that's mm -hmm. um usually the danger is past and no longer a threat and i there are some games that i think are using using that framework to do more of a um cascade of of things where you have to do you know do multiple things in order to get past the the obstacle or what what have you but yeah i i it, it's fertile ground i think 
for mm-hmm. for exploring. Yep, definitely, completely agree. Yes, I think uh, I think we've yes. done a pretty good job at covering some some cool uh, innovations in different yes. media can be exploited for that. Uh, was there anything else that anyone wanted to add? Nope, big pat on the back for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of lovely inspiration you can take from things absorbing media to, to get uh uh mind frames can be useful but it isn't necessarily what we're referring to here uh yeah good night everyone don't die okay i want to add one very very small thing uh-huh was names final fantasy 14 did a really good job of setting up each of the cultures in the game as having very explicit and different ways for building the character names. Mm. And it struck me odd when I saw that, that like I don't think I've actually seen a tabletop role-playing game that actually provided like explicit rules for name generation instead of just a handful of here's like 10 examples for like Mm -hmm. what an elf name sounds like it's like no here's the actual structure and reasoning behind why they name their their kids this way and Mm -hmm. i did try to take advantage of that myself that's about it yeah i I actually i of all people have a game where that is in i don't know how that happened Well, you heard it here first, folks. Cavalier has a mechanic in his games. Well, it's not a mechanic. Uh, I meant like, I, have, I have a game where there is a name where like I establish naming structures for the different cultures and why they are the way they are. Cool. What? Which one's that? Uh, it's the one about the. It's the one about the weird uh, post office people. Uh, God, how do I describe that game quickly? Uh, it's it's the one that was that I tried to do in Willask, but I didn't actually like running Burning Willask. So, yeah. just by knowing, like, I see a lot of good things about it, and it just doesn't mesh with how I want to run a game. Uh, but, yeah. Okay. All right. It's that was. Anyone asking the game? It is, because. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna kill it here. All right. Thank you everybody for listening. If you're still listening, appreciate it. Uh subscribe to our things. Uh click the likey heart button and the ringy bell button and whatever other buttons you like that seem nice to you. And then join our, um, join our Discord and yell at yeah, yell at us in the broadcast real yes. time. I yes, like the food palette dispension button. That's a good yeah, one to press. I, I mean, you can follow our Twitter, but like, that's really, I don't, you don't have to. Don't be on Twitter. <laughs> don't chill it too hard, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> no, I totally agree with Rob. Don't, don't be on Twitter. Yeah, it's not good. Not even you. for us. That's, that's no. not worth it. No, it's not worth it. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.